At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Liminal, an Atlanta concerto, is a piece co-written by Okori Johnson, a.k.a. O.K. Cello, with conductor Timothy Verville. The music explores contemporary African diasporic stories and song forms within an orchestral setting. The cellist and conductor join us later this hour to guide us through the music ahead of its premiere with the Georgia Symphony Orchestra this weekend. Plus, we'll hear from artist and curator Dwayne W. Wright in our series, Speaking of Art. First, among the best gifts Atlanta's film and TV industry boom has given the local community is the hugely successful and respected FX series, Atlanta. The show, created by and starring the actor-writer-comedian and musician Donald Glover, takes its audience on surreal journeys, intimate, unsettling, and often hilarious, through the city we call home. Its newest season, out now on Hulu, features an episode directed by the Atlanta native Angela Barnes, and she's nominated for an NAACP Image Award for her work on the show. She joins me now via Zoom. Angela Barnes, welcome to City Lights. Hi, thank you so much for having me. For lots of Atlantans, I'm sure every season premiere of the show, Atlanta, feels like a community pride event. Were you a fan of the show, Atlanta, before you came on to direct? I was. I came up in the business as an assistant director. I was a first assistant director for a long time. And Atlanta was my last job as a first assistant director. I was going to, I was in the process of transitioning into directing full-time. Um, and Alex Orr, who is a producer who lives here in Atlanta, reached out to me and was like, Hey, we need a first AD. And I had read about the series that it was coming. And I was like, okay, I will do one more. And I did, I did the pilot and uh, season one, and then a little bit of season two as their AD. And then I, you know, I told him like for season two, I had already stopped uh, first ADing. 
but I came in just because I love them so much. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, they just one of the best, you know, what best shows, not just creatively, but like personally for me, both as an assistant director and as a director. Yeah, that's heartening to know that's because of Donald Glover. Yes, Donald and, and Hiro Mirai, who's the um, executive producer and who directs most of the episodes, the two of them are, I don't know, they're just, just mad cool dudes, you know? And for a show that's, you know, has a lot of men in charge and has is about dudes, you'd think it would have like a, a bro, you know, you'd worry about having a bro energy behind the scenes. And I joked with Donald, I was like, you know, the awards are nice, you know, this Emmy is nice, the Golden Globes are nice, but literally this is the only show I've never been mansplained on. Like this is, that to me is the best award ever, like that I can come in and not have to worry about people second guessing because as a woman and as a woman of color, I started very young in the business too, as people, you know, don't always want to listen to what you have to say the first time. Sometimes they need somebody else to say it for, you know, for you. And, you know, the guys are just, they're really good about, you know, they, once they trust you, it's it. They're like, what do you want to do? Okay, let's do it. And, you know, it's just a really cool vibe and no, no jerks allowed. <laughs> well, that is quite a tribute to them mm-hmm. and deserved. I mean, why it shouldn't have to gain special notice, but as you point out in our world, mansplaining <laughs> is not uncommon. Yeah. So the episode you directed is called The Homeliest Little Horse. And this mini chapter of the ongoing Atlanta saga lays out a fascinating slice of life. I think it's safe to say it ends with a major twist. Without giving too much away, if that's possible, I'd love to hear your synopsis of the episode. Well, the episode starts off, there's two stories that are going at the same time. One is about a young woman who has dreams of being a children's book author and who finally seems to get her foot in the door into that career. And she's really excited and it shows how she's jumping through all these hoops to try to get her shot. And then at the same time, we see Earn through various stages of therapy from his, you know, his first time going. And then, you know, as he gets more comfortable, we see another visit. And then as he, you know, kind of has a breakthrough, you know, so we see these, these phases in, in, in his therapy. And then at the end, we see how these two stories relate to each other in a way that I think is pretty hilarious. Hilarious <laughs> and shocking. Shocking. <laughs> But yeah, so it was a lot of fun to do. Atlanta episodes are always fun when you read them. I mean, I, and when you're in the business, and especially when I was still an AD, you know, you read it for the technical stuff. You read it to see like what elements you might need and you read it, you know, in that sense. And it's one of the sh- few shows where you just would, I would always do one read that was just for entertainment and I wouldn't take any notes or anything because every, every script had something just, it was, they were just amazing. It's just a, such an amazing show. Hmm. The thing that struck me most about The Homeliest Little Horse was the intimacy of it. Both of its major characters, one, of course, being our protagonist, Ern, spend intimate, close-camera time with us as they attempt to grapple with their thorniest personal struggles. The pacing is so deliberate and unhurried. 
that when we get to the end, we are walloped by the bizarre reveal. I'm sure plenty has to do with the smart writing you credit. But Angela, I was wondering if pacing was a high priority for you in deciding how to best convey this story. Yes, I think I always say that directing to me, it's like music or like dancing, you know, like there is a rhythm to it. And if you stay in the same beat for too long, you know, sometimes you just need to change it up a little bit. I like snappy shows. I like scenes that, you know, that, that go, 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 go. But, you know, here's a guy who's easing into his therapy. He's easing into opening up to this man. He's, you know, he's just met that is his therapist. So stuff like that can't, you know, it can't be in a hurry. You know, we see the first time he's on his phone half the time to the point the guy's like, dude, put the, you know, give me your phone. So that's something that wouldn't be hurried. It's something that you see, there's pauses of him texting, you know, and waiting. And then, you know, the, in this, the scene when he's more comfortable, he is, you know, letting things go a little, if things are moving a little faster. But I think the time, the breakthrough that he has, it doesn't happen all at once. And I think anybody who's either been in therapy or done a lot of work on themselves, having a realization, especially the, the you know, when things get overwhelming, it just, and it can hit you in a way that it's, it's kind of creeps up on you. And I think it was important to make sure that we felt all the beats leading up to that. Otherwise it wouldn't, it wouldn't hit as hard. Striking to realize how rarely we see a black man in therapy on TV, or even to see black men on TV taking gentle care of each other with the kindness Ernst therapist shows. I'm curious about feedback you've received from fans of this show and if this intimate glimpse into Ernst therapy resonated with them. Yeah, there is a lot of a lot of positive feedback, just like what you said. It's like this is something we don't ever see. I know a lot of black dudes in therapy. I know my friends understand that therapy, you know, mental health care and self-care are important, but it's something that, you know, I think that that message can be more widespread. Like I think I think we'd all be a lot better off if more of us were in steady relationship with a therapist. <laughs> but yeah, I think most of it was really positive. And I think also seeing the trauma, like how un process trauma can settle in your body and that we can't just let time take care of it that you have to actively it's the same as if you you know broke a toe if you just let it go it's not going to just fix itself you gotta you have to do something to kind of help it along there's a poignant commentary in the discussion between Ern and his therapist about spite specifically the spite that might be held by someone who's been chronically othered and suffered from it. We know that Donald Glover's writing keenly observes how racism can sour even the most mundane aspects of black lives. Did you and he talk more behind the scenes about spite? 
bite and the feelings his character unpacks in therapy. We didn't talk as much about spite as much as we talked about trauma. Because like spite is the is the result, you know, like it's a behavior. Yeah. So like what is what is it that causes Ern to get to this position? And I have two boys. My youngest boy we adopted when he was four. And he had been in the foster care system and he had been, yeah, we were family number four. He had been in since he was born. And so when we brought him in, he's great. He's like, oh my God, he's the sunshine of my life. Oh. But, you know, there was a lot of having to deal with the things that he had gone through in the four years before he came to live with us. So I had done a deep dive into all the things about childhood trauma and how, you know, you know, things you need to do to to process it and things that are help and what triggers are and all that stuff. So I had that, you know, from that going down that rabbit hole years ago, a lot of that we talked about, like what, how does it manifest itself? When does it click? And like, how how does, what happened to him of the story he's telling in his past relate to his present and why do things hold on in a certain way? And why does this thing trigger that thing, you know? that's kind of more it's like the source versus the behavior of why why he's you know it's why is he spiteful so it was a lot it was it was one of the most that last scene in the therapist's office was one of the most incredible directing experiences I've ever had on set and it was one of those things that I thought it was just me like I was just excited that I, the scene was going the way that I wanted it to and that it felt right and that it, you know, and then when we were all done, when we'd wrap the scene, like, like two of the crew members came up to me, like separately were like, that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Like, and that never happens. Like, it was, so it was very exciting that it was one of those moments where just Donald's performance and because we did, and like a lot of times on TV, it's like, go, 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 go. Cause you don't have enough time to do everything. And we did, we would do a take. And then we would stop and we would just talk for like 10 minutes, say like, you know, okay, what's going on here? Blah, 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 blah. Okay. You want to try another one? Okay, sure. And we only did, I think like three takes, but I think after like the second take, I'm like, do we need another one? Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, props to Donald. He killed it. You know, if you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights speaking with director Angela Barnes. Her episode of the FX series Atlanta, titled The Homeliest Little Horse, was recently nominated for an NAACP Image Award. In an interview last year, you made an interesting comparison between TV directing and film directing, explaining why your chosen field suits you. And I love this comment. You said that in film directing, you're the parent. But in TV, you're more like a well-paid nanny. Would you talk more about why you thrive in the medium of episodic television? I think one of the main things that I really loved about directing and television is that you dip in and you dip out. Because like I'm there for one episode. Um, what happens after my episode is not, I have no control over. 
what happens before my episode, I have no control over. I only even have control over up until my director's cut, and then I give it to the producers, and they can do whatever they want to with it, right? Really? But, yeah. I mean, you know, there's some things that I think they're restricted on, but they, you know, if it's 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 not it does not belong to me. It belongs it's the the showrunner. It's really their show. And as a mom, I'm a single mom, so I'm not trying to disappear <laughs> for an entire like a, a feature film was you're in that and it's not just for the shooting schedule you're there through all through prep you're all through production you're all through post and then after you're doing whatever you need to do to get the word out about film and so you know in the beginning when I first started directing I just didn't I just knew I didn't have the bandwidth to be both a good director and a good mom if I was going into the feature world just because of this this my setup people do it don't get me wrong there's plenty of women out there that are out there doing it but for the way that I was set you know and in the support system that I had set up I knew that I needed to be home as much as I could and not be away for too long and especially like my youngest like being away for a long time was not something that was good for him as he needed he needed the stability of having me around as much as possible so now that they're older I'm actually getting into you know I'm taking meetings for features and for you know pilots and that kind of thing so it's one of those things. I think I've been a nanny for a while now and I'm ready to maybe have one of my own. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been a lot of fun, just meeting with different people and seeing what kinds of things are out there. I'm writing, working on a project now with a, my writing partner and it's, I don't know, it's very exciting. It sounds so. In 2020, you connected with the Go Vote campaign to conceptualize and direct the PSA video get your booty to the polls. And the video caused a huge sensation on the internet, garnering attention from Politico, John Oliver, and Stephen Colbert. Can you tell us more about what you came up with for the video, who you were trying to reach and why? Well, you know, everybody remembers the pandemic the very beginning when everything was just stopped, right? And then we were all stuck in our houses and then George Floyd was murdered. And then I have a group of director friends that are all TV directors, black TV directors that were in a chat group that we talked to each other. And we were just talking about, you know, none of us were working because all the productions had shut down, but we were storytellers. And what could we do to help elevate black voices and, you know, just like, what, what could we do? We didn't know what to do. <laughs> so we asked around because, you know, some, some of them had influential friends. And so we talked to some people about like, you know, is, is helping with the census a thing? Is helping with voting a thing? So voting, we said voting was a big deal. And then those of us that are here in Atlanta said, okay, let's do something specific to Georgia, specific to Atlanta. What can we do? And it was just one of those things that comes up in a meeting where, you know, people are throwing around ideas of like, well, we could do this or we could do that. And everything seemed like a good idea, but that needed a lot of money or that needed a lot, you know, a lot more prep than what we had to get ready for it. And I said, well, no, we need something that is specific to Atlanta. And we need something that is either funny enough or shocking enough that people will share it because we don't have the money to do sponsored ads. <laughs> so we need to make sure that people are going to want to share it willingly. And I said, I don't know, like 
Magic City stripper is saying, get your booty to the pole. Like that's how, literally that's how it came up as a, as a joke. <laughs> and then the more I thought about it, I was like, you know what? If, you know, if the dancers are the ones that are delivering the message, like for at the beginning, I said it as a joke, like as if that was like getting their attention. And I was like, no, I, I don't want to do that. Like I consider myself a fairly feminist person to me just waving booties to get attention was not what we were trying to do. But if the, the dancers had the message and I think it could work and dude, all props to Paul Fox, who was my producer, who was the producer on it. I posted on Facebook, Hey guys, I think I'm, I'm thinking about doing a voter ad using exotic dancers to say, you know, go vote. And everybody was like, I'm in, I help. What do you need? What do you need? And Paul Fox like didn't text back. He called me. He's like, yo, I just saw your post. Do you need a producer? And I was like, yes, because I hate that. I hate producing. And so Paul Fox and Ashley Bedford both, you know, took the ball and ran with it. I ended up getting a job in the middle of the pandemic, which was unheard of. I worked on a show called Social Distance. So I was directing from my living room. So they were really great. They went on dancers like Instagrams and stuff to see what dancers were posting things that were political. And then they went into the clubs and talked to the dancers and, hey, we're doing this thing. Would you be interested in doing it? So and we got so lucky. I mean, Coy Malone, we got Nikki St. John, Jenny Gangs, the poor Lewis, like Monty Dixon, like the, the, the dancers we got were just so <laughs> outstanding and just in it, like in, in, you know, like all for it too, you know? So, so yeah. And I, you know, part of what we were told, you know, black women vote all the time. Like we, we're not, we don't have to worry about telling black women to go vote. We vote all the time. So when trying to figure out like, well, who do we want to target? I was like, well, let me just target the smallest possible niche possible because the more broad you get the harder it is to get everybody so we said well let's just go after like black men that are into strip clubs you know so it's not like all black men some black men are into (laughs) cigar bars or art galleries or church or a combination of all that stuff but it's Atlanta so a lot of them are into strip clubs because that's part of the that's very Atlanta culture like you don't even need to be into strippers to be into strip clubs in Atlanta. That's just the way it is. It's social. And, you know, a lot of people thought it was amazing. A lot of people thought it was, you know, tacky and or offensive, you know, to them, I just say, well, then don't look at it. <laughs> so, Well, but for everyone who thought Stacey Abrams was responsible for turning Georgia purple and getting out the vote in 2020, uh, were you feeling left out if you weren't mentioned in the same breath? No, no. I, first of all, I did this for, I did it for my kids, you know, like this is. Wait, what? How old are they now? They're now they're 10 and 14. (laughs) And I did it because I wanted my kids to live in a country where democracy was still around. Okay, you know? okay, you didn't do it for them to I didn't, watch. I didn't do it for the dancers. Yeah, I think the youngest one still has never even seen it. But it's, they heard the song, though, because I would be editing it. <laughs> I'd be working on the cut, looking at the edits, and they would hear this, the, the hook a couple times. But but yeah, I just, like, for me, it was like, I need to make this place, I want to make this world a place that's safe for my children. I want to make this world a place that's good for my children. And And if I can do that by getting people involved in the democratic process, and we purposely, you know, did not say vote red or blue. We purposely were like, just vote. And if you've, and my hope is that if you vote in your best interest on a local level, then hopefully we'll all get along, mm. you know, we'll all, we'll all be doing it. We'll, we'll all do a little bit better. 
you know, it's rough out there right now, Lois. Oh, my God. <laughs> if only. It's rough. So your next project I read is directing episodes of the Marvel series Ironheart. I don't know how much, if anything, you're allowed to disclose here. Is there anything you can tell us about the show and how you'll treat its material? Yes, it follows Riri Williams, who is introduced in Wakanda Forever. We see her as the college student that kind of sets off the events of the, the second Black Panther film. So we see her, we see one, like the first a couple iterations of her suit. So Ironheart picks up after the events of that film. And that's all I can tell you about the story. Oh. But um, <laughs> stay tuned, as we say. Yeah, but it is, you know, it was so much fun. There's so many, just the cast we got was amazing. There's going to be a lot of, some of them have got leaked, some of them didn't. And uh, y'all are going to, there's a lot of just wonderful, wonderful surprises in our casting side. It's a TV show, but Marvel's, their, their ethos is like, we're going to make the action. We may not have as much of the action in the TV shows because, you know, costs of, you know, for visual effects and stunts and stuff, but they want it to be as good as the film. So like we're doing, you know, big crashes and big visual effects and, you know, big fight scenes. And it's, it's, oh, it's been so much fun. And I got to stay home. <laughs> you got to stay home. You got to stay home. So I was like, guess what, kids? I got a job. And they're like, okay, where are you going? I'm like, nope, I'm home. That was Angela Barnes, director of the NAACP Image Award-nominated episode, The Holiest Little Horse, from the new season of Atlanta. You can find out more about Barnes's work on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about the Georgia Symphony Orchestra's upcoming concert, You Shall Hear. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. As Black History Month continues to honor famous and important, though lesser-known figures in Black history, the Georgia Symphony Orchestra is presenting music by Black composers in its upcoming concert titled You Shall Hear. The program will feature 
the world premiere of Liminal, an Atlantic concerto for cello and orchestra, co-written by Atlanta cellist Okori Johnson, a.k.a. OK Cello, and Timothy Verville, music director of the Georgia Symphony Orchestra. They join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us, Lois. Yes, thank you so much, Lois. Please tell us how this collaboration came about. Well, do you, do you want to start, Corey, or should I start? I wasn't sure. Um, I don't know that you and I have ever talked about how we met or how we came together, but I, I would love, honestly, to hear your version of it. <laughs> oh, uh, well, that's always an interesting... I'd love to hear your version of it. Because <laughs> I don't remember it so clearly, but but let's let's get started. Well, I, I can tell you my my first introduction to Okori's music was through a mutual acquaintance, Chad Hagen, who this was, I think, right before Beacon came out. And he had sent me sent me a preview of the album and some other information about Okori. And I, I did some listening and started listening to some of the other music that he had written, looking into some of the more storytelling aspect of it. And so I thought, you know, there's an element that's really engaging in what Okori does in in the music and the storytelling. And I wanted to see what that might look like as a way to present what Okori does essentially to our audiences at the Georgia Symphony and and also to help work on, you know, broadening our audiences to to reach out to other people in our community. And so from there, you know, that's when I, I think I first reached out to <laughs> I reached out to you, Okori. And, you know, we had a meetup and we were trying to decide, you know, what what might this look like? Because um, you know, we're we were sort of paving new territory and and we went through, you know, a lot of different ideas of of things that could be possibilities. And this was one of them that that came out of it. That sounds very much like the story that I was going to tell. Well, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious about the process of working together on this piece. Co-writing music is not easy. How did you divide the tasks? Um, I don't know that there was much of a division of labor. I think the reality was I shot Tim quite a few ideas. And these are actually ideas that weren't yet recorded or weren't yet part of songs that I performed during shows. And in all honesty, none of those ideas actually really made it. But as a result of looking or kind of listening through my catalog, it seems like Tim found some songs that were already kind of established OK Cello songs that worked together as a narrative. And so he would kind of throw some ideas out in terms of, you know, I'm thinking about these songs, here's kind of a a MIDI mock-up, and I would listen and say, oh my God, I love that, that's great. most fun was maybe in November of 2021 or maybe October of 2021 we got a chance to get in the same room and to listen to kind of a MIDI mock-up that he was working on 
I don't know, it was fun. I had my cello and I was playing along with it because these are essentially um, songs that were orchestrated, but we kept the solo parts intact. And then we had some really fun time kind of brainstorming potential for percussion. And then Tim went back and found some beautiful, authentic kind of West African percussion rhythms to kind of incorporate into it. And so I don't know, that moment, really October, November, 2021 was kind of a pinch me moment when I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that this is actually happening and happening and turning into something. Right. And you know, Corey is absolutely right in that when I was listening to his music, it 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 very much, I think I, I told you, Corey, at one point I, I said, I feel like using the music in this way with these selections, I feel like I'm telling a story that I don't necessarily know the exact narrative, but the pieces fit together really well in my mind. And then that's when Okori would share with me a little more detail about in depth of what the pieces were. So I, I think that just goes to show that the level of depth that went into them originally, which actually helped as we magnify it when we put it on the stage and have all the orchestra performing this music. Tim, you mentioned that you're eager, excited to get this music in front of the Georgia Symphony Orchestra audience, which I would think is accustomed to more mainstream or standard classical repertoire. Would that be correct? I think that would be not necessarily correct because even before my time with the GSO, I started roughly six years ago. The organization has had a, a good history of performing more than just standard canon. And when I arrived, we immediately started working on expanding that out to what it is we do, the types of music we perform, how we want to engage with people. So it's it's something that I think is just par for the course for us. But if you're first time coming to a concert hall, then I'd like you to have that experience where you say, oh, well, this is what an orchestra concert can be like and, and have that as your idea with that. It doesn't mean we still don't do the classics, you know, the old standard war horses, but as someone who believes variety is the spice of life, I, I feel very grateful that uh, we have an audience who also goes with us on this journey. Oh, yes. I, the reason I asked was not to diminish the contemporary repertoire you perform, but I read that you said you see this collaboration as shaking up the classical repertoire a bit by putting this music in front of audiences in a new way. Right, right. And part of that is because we're, in one way, we're taking more modern music in terms of not 20th century atonal or, or anything like that, but music that is modern in terms of it was written in the past few years and putting it in a new medium. But at the same time, we're also incorporating some non-standard ideas and having Okori playing with a looping device on stage, that's not something that you see too often. And if your listeners aren't sure what that means, it, it means that he'll play something and it's, it's essentially recorded and played back in real time. So then he can accompany himself. And that was something that I thought was important to, to keep within the context of this concerto, where there are times where the orchestra is the loop, but then there's times where I wanted to kind of call back to where it came from, where this music came from. And let the you know especially at the start of the second movement where the audience can they'll sit there for you know a, a minute minute and a half and then i think be struck by this realization that all of the sound they're hearing is just from one performer on the stage using this this looping recording box 
I'm so glad you brought that up. I was hoping to ask about the looping method that Akori uses because it leads to such a rich experience for the listener. Akori, you've said that having a career as a looping, improvising, composing, storytelling black cellist is improbable anywhere else but Atlanta. Why? Ah, wow, that's a great question. You know, it might be interesting to talk about the why through exploring some other genres. I think hip hop has kind of become one of the contemporary voices of American culture and certainly of like maybe global culture. And as of late, the last few years, Atlanta has become a capital of that culture. Um, And what's interesting about Atlanta is that when the hip hop culture had been clearly established as an East Coast, West Coast thing, very hard kind of lyric driven thing on the East Coast and a very kind of, you know, aggressive sometimes, but melodic thing on the West Coast. Atlanta showed up with an amazingly new and different flavor, on not only of hip hop, but specifically of black culture. And I really want to credit maybe Andre 3000 and uh, Organized Noise and Goody Mob for taking hip hop, taking black culture and turning it on its ear and creating space in some ways for what we might consider kind of an alt contemporary black existence. I would also maybe even credit speech from Arrested Development for doing that. And so from the time that I remember being a college student, Atlanta was this place where you really could explore a wide spectrum of black identity and performance in ways that felt much more narrow and and kind of restricted in several other places. I'm from Washington, DC. I love Washington, DC. I think I feel like I make more sense in Atlanta than I do in DC and in several other places around the country. And so for whatever reason, I came to understand and came to experience Atlanta as this fertile ground for all manner and all creativity of blackness, identity, art, creativity, theory, philosophy. And as a result, I think it's a place that made me feel comfortable creating this. And I don't know that I necessarily would have felt that comfortable creating this in other spaces. So that's some of what I, some of the reasons why I attribute Atlanta with being the place where this really random and somewhat improbable creation could comfortably take root. Uh, Corey, why did you choose the name Liminal for this piece? You know, it's, it's funny. <laughs> I think I'm in, in danger of overusing that word. It is my favorite word. It is the name of a song that I play frequently. It is the name of my first album. And now it is the name of a concerto that does not contain the song liminal in it. So I'm sure I'm doing some kind of, I'm creating some confusion for my audience. But I chose liminal because for me, what I do and what this piece is, is very much at the intersection of so many different borders, right? So it's certainly at the intersection of what we would consider like Western and and kind of African music, right? So classical, I think that there are a lot of African themes, both implied and explicitly stated in this concerto, first off. Um, It's at the intersection of kind of ancient technology and contemporary technology. So we've got the looping and we've got this cello, which is hundreds of years old, right? And no one's ever really improved upon the technology of the cello, so that's pretty exciting.
In addition to that, I think we also have this kind of intersection of worlds and culture, particularly as classical institutions explore different music, especially in Black History Month, right? So I feel like my work is very much at the intersection of those communities, of those traditions. And Atlanta in general has been a place where I have been constantly becoming. And so the other definition of liminal is no longer what you once were and yet to be what you are becoming. And I feel like this concerto is that for me. Um, I hope that this is the beginning of several pieces of art or pieces of music that I create that are kind of orchestral versions of, you know, smaller looping songs that I've written. So that's the reason why I kind of chose Liminal. I think the title that is maybe most important to me is an Atlanta concerto because all of these pieces were written here in Atlanta. And in, in some ways I have a very strong fondness for the kind of inspiration this city has kind of brought out of me, right? So, or created for me. Those are the reasons that at least made me think that that was a good title. It was actually originally called Liminality and Timothy was like, too much. <laughs> <laughs> just, just call it Liminal according. Oh, well, I love the tribute to Atlanta within it as well as the metaphor. Tim, in addition to Liminal, what else will people hear at this concert you shall hear? So they shall hear, if you forgive the, the <laughs> pun, we're opening the set of performances with Florence Price's Concert Overture Number 2. She was originally from Arkansas, and then she went on, she received further training at the New England Conservatory. And a lot of her music had actually been lost for a number of years, and it's a really interesting story that in 2009, they found a bunch of her lost compositions in a house that had been abandoned outside of Chicago, where she eventually ended up. And this was included within that. So we get a chance to rediscover for some of our, our listeners and, and audience members, a composer who had fallen into the back of essentially the line. But during her time, she was recognized as one of you know the first most successful African American women composers, first to have her music performed by you know major orchestras. So it's a wonderful piece, quotes several uh, spirituals in it, and it's a good way to open the concert. And then we obviously move into the concerto. We we're following more of a standard you know expected symphony orchestra concert for this one, but uh, after intermission. We're then performing another piece that has also fallen to the wayside, which is Samuel Coleridge Taylor's Hiawatha's Wedding Feast, which was written by the Afro-British composer. His father was from Sierra Leone and his mother was uh, British. And this was a piece that at the time of its writing and for about 20, 30 years after that, it went head to head with the Messiah. And it also would sometimes outsell the Messiah and Mendelssohn's Elijah at these big choral festivals. And that also has the Georgia Symphony Orchestra Chorus on it. We have a guest soloist, the tenor Timothy Harper, who's going to join us for this wonderful solo that's inside the middle of it. That's just this love song. So we're, we're really kind of exploring rep that I would venture to say most people in the audience haven't had the opportunity to hear live. Georgia Symphony Orchestra Music Director Timothy Verville and cellist Corey Johnson, better known as OK Cello, the world premiere of Liminal, an Atlanta concerto for cello and orchestra, is part of this Saturday's Georgia Symphony Orchestra concert, You Shall Hear. The performance takes place at 
the Marietta Performing Arts Center, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series highlighting local visual artists speaking of art. Today features Dwayne W. Wright. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Art, where we hear from local visual artists in their own words. Hello, my name is Dwayne Wright. Most people know me as W, and I'm an artist and curator based here in Atlanta. I believe that as an artist, you add a little bit of yourself in just about everything you do, whether it's commercial work, whether it's personal work, illustration, design, whatever it is you do, you're going to put a little bit of yourself in there and your experiences, and I'm no different. I grew up in New York, and I put a lot of the things that were around me at the time. You know, I was there when hip-hop was just getting its footing and getting out there, and I add a lot of those elements like concrete and textures of metals and all that stuff in my work to this day, as well as the heavily, heavily influence of hip-hop culture. And when I moved to North Carolina, I experienced a lot of nature, and I add that in my work as well, so you'll see the birds and you'll see the plants and all of that as well. I was around 14 years old when I realized that hip-hop music and beat making came from pre-existing music. And then I became obsessed with it, trying to find out where are these songs that I like, where did they come from originally, who was the original artist that made these songs. And I used to hang out with DJs. You know, back then having equipment was a major deal. You know, very few people actually had equipment to make music. And that passion that started from way back when is still in my work to this day. I use speakers as buildings in some of my pieces. I use keyboards for texture. I use some of the plants from nature in my pieces. And I put all of that together to create the background for where the figure exists. And when it comes to making a figure that is the subject of a piece, I like to create someone that is familiar looking to the point where you feel like you might know somebody that looks like this person. You know, like you may have seen this person somewhere. And that's just something I do to connect with the viewers. So when you add that level of familiarity with the composition, the colors and the design of the piece, as well as some of the elements and Easter eggs in the painting, it adds a level of connection that draws the viewer in. And once you have that, then you can take the viewer on any journey you want. Once they are in, you got them. And that's what I use to draw people into my pieces. I've always been into art as far as I can remember I've always been an, in my mind an artist now I wasn't the greatest art student but I always considered myself pretty decent as an artist when I was a kid and I've managed to somehow fail art many many times before I graduated high school but after high school I went on to college and got my degree in illustration and then once I got the degree you know I thought I was going to be tearing up the world as an illustrator and a designer but that really wasn't in the cards because of where I was from. You know, there wasn't that many opportunities out there. And I started to look for opportunities in Atlanta because I had some experiences in Atlanta during the Black Arts Festival that had me hooked and sold on it. You know, 
once I saw the level of creativity that was down here and the artists that were working and thriving, I was like, as soon as I get an opportunity to come down to Atlanta, that's where I was. And that's how I ended up in the city. And that's why I continue to stay here in Atlanta because of the community and the scene here. The people here support the arts and they support artists and they're, they're just a really, it's just a really great city to live if you're a creative person. After being around for as long as I have been and as much as I've seen, the way to stay motivated is to keep looking for what's next. Keep thinking of ways to improve your skill set. Keep thinking of ways to sharpen your skill set. See what new technologies are out there and see how you can incorporate that into what you're doing and which ways to get better and faster because, you know, you don't know everything. And even if you did know everything, you won't know everything for long because things are going to continuously change. So it's good to stay active and stay out there and, you know, just stay in the mix and to try to keep things current and relevant when it comes to places to check out some artwork i would definitely say check out future galleries also go to castleberry hill then check out peter street station and if you want to see what's really popping on the mural scene here in atlanta and who's really getting down on the walls and how that scene has just flourished you got to check out the forward warrior walls in cabbage town that is definitely a must if you want to keep up with what I have going on or learn more about what I'm doing or what I'm up to, you can check me out at D-U-B-E-L-Y-O-O, -O, which is W.net, or you can follow me on Instagram at W. If you want to keep up with what we have going on with Jack Honey Art Beats and Lyrics, you can follow us on Instagram at Art Beats and Lyrics or on our website, ArtBeatsAndLyrics.com. Artist Dwayne W. Wright and our series Speaking of Art. More information about Wright's work as well as our entire Speaking of series is on our website, wabe.org slash speaking of. The Castleberry Hill Tattoo Shop, City of Ink, is celebrating its 16th anniversary with a block party. This Friday, City of Ink, also known as Koi, will showcase local artists and musicians in front of the store. City of Ink co-owner and tattoo artist Maya Bailey said he's excited for what's in store. I'm really excited about seeing some of the OG artists come out and what they're going to do this year. Artists like Charlie Palmer and Kevin Williams and Fahamu and Mr. Soul, Flux and Goldie. Like, all these names are the artists that kind of, like, laid down Atlanta a foundation in the art scene, man. It's just, that's why I get excited the most, to see what they're going to create. Because you never know what you're going to get. So I cannot wait for this anniversary show. The block party will feature over 150 artists and more than 20 DJs. Artwork will also be for sale. The event takes place Friday from 7 to 11 p.m. at the City of Ink Castleberry Hill location. More information is on their Instagram at City of Ink. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Daniel H. Weiss, president and CEO of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and author of Why the Museum Matters, joins us 
ahead of his upcoming discussion at Emory University's Carlos Museum. Plus, the next installment in our series, Speaking of Dance, and we'll jump for joy and hear about the world's biggest bounce house coming to the Gwinnett County Fairgrounds this weekend. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with television director Angela Barnes, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.